chi non sa la verità ma oh ma oh c'è chi riesce a sopportar ma oh ma Cosa mai succederà, ma oh ma oh, del mondo cosa ne sarà, ma oh ma oh, se tu lo sai dicelo un po', ma oh ma oh. All right, welcome to the belated Halloween special of two or three things I know. We set ourselves the goal that we would finish this one by Halloween, and that didn't happen at all but we did try we tried our best yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not quite christmas so we're okay and we are talking about john carpenter and we're not just talking about any john carpenter film we're talking about a trilogy of films a loosely connected trilogy of films made by john carpenter in the 80s and 90s of cosmic horror films films about apocalypses of various sorts films about like the instability of human existence and knowledge and discovering that everything you know is actually not what the world is really like films about beautiful boys in awful situations you know lovecraft it's like that lovecraft but without the racism there are definitely other things that are like influences on the films which gets at one of my favorite cited influences on the films which is of course the writing of nigel Keane, the british writer because prince of darkness the writing credit is cited as martin quatermass which is a reference to the film quatermass in the pit the british horror film and television series. Uh, it was actually written by John Carpenter, the script for Prince of Darkness, but... He was doing a little joke. So many filmmakers, they want to put out there <laughs> who their influences are and sort of what inspires them and sort of explicitly cite them work. Some of them have the decency to be less obnoxious about it than Tarantino. Nigel Neal, or however you say his name, I have literally no idea. So apologies to fans of his. Apologies to our British listeners was like a horror writer and television writer from like the 60s and 70s. He also wrote for like Halloween 3, as a matter of fact. I am such a fake Halloween fan. I've only seen the original John Carpenter movie and the Rob Zombie movie. I have not seen the second Rob Zombie movie, only the first one. I have not seen any of the Rob Zombie ones. That's something that I will correct at some point. I have seen Halloween 2, the Carpenter-produced one, and I think that one's really not good. That turned me off the rest of the series for a while. I need to correct that. <laughs> but we are not talking about any of the Halloween movies. We are talking about The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness. After Carpenter kind of established himself as the horror guy, or at least one of the horror guys, he made a series of films. All of these films had very mixed critical receptions when they came out. And now, of course, The Thing is beloved. The Thing is like a canonical horror classic now. The Thing is canon. Prince of Darkness is, depending on who you ask, canon. In the Mouth of Madness isn't quite languishing in obscurity, but it's not as, like, instantly recognizable a name as The Thing. 
I think across the three films, the reclamation of the thing is basically over at this point and has been probably since the era of VHS. I mean, it's a good movie. I think it's... Yeah, it's a good movie. It's cool. It's got cool special effects. It's got a cool soundtrack. It's got a beautiful Kurt Russell. It's got a great dog. Lots of cool stuff happens in the thing. But it's also very easy to see why critics in 1982 were so hard on it. Mostly because it would have, if you were seeing every new release science fiction and horror film, it would feel a bit like a repeat. Like, Alien came out three years earlier. It's like, oh, another one of these fucking movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's interesting, I think, about The Thing is it's one of those films that, in terms of, like, the scope of influences it's had, has kind of transcended the medium, if that makes sense. What do you mean exactly by that? (laughs) That's a very academic way of saying it's influenced a bunch of video games. It's not as influential on Metal Gear Solid as... Escape from New York, which is also Kurt Russell directed by John Carpenter. There's echoes of the thing in Shin Megami Tensei Strange Journey, which is a very similar premise of something's going on in the Arctic. There's a group of people going to investigate it. There's some apocalyptic shit going on. And one thing that I kind of want to point out is the thing is not an original film. It's an adaptation of a novella called Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, which was originally adapted into a film in the 50s, which is titled The Thing from Another World, and has this kind of, in my mind, very interesting relationship with The Thing from Another World, because The Thing from Another World is very easy to situate in the kind of post-World War II anti-communist panic film, if that makes any sense. Every science fiction film in the 50s has this sort of communism allegory to it, What's interesting about the Carpenter film in particular is the way it kind of plays with that. It plays into the sort of nationalist paranoia of the original film, but it does so like not affirming it, if that makes sense. Even just the way the characters in the film talk about Norway as this sort of exotic other that is not understandable. And the whole film is about people not being who they appear to be and them being masquerading as friends when actually there are deadly enemies that seek to infiltrate us from within. It's definitely easy to see how that would have a resonance originally in a kind of 1950s context of the Red Scare being in full force, that all of these science fiction films that are about brainwashing and control and infiltrating from within to destroy us would have a particular resonance within the American film-going public. And I think what's interesting about the thing is that is that the Carpenter film is very adapted to the original, but I don't think it full-heartedly, I think it very much complicates the original kind of simple good v evil narrative of the original film, in part because it makes everyone on the research center so morally compromised. Like when Kurt Russell's character kills the guy who turns out to not be the thing. Everyone goes, so you're a murderer. The whole film is like, even the people who survive in the film are so just tainted by this paranoia. No one trusts anyone, and that sort of distrust in everyone, it can drive anyone to commit evil acts, even if they're not 
evil people. Yeah, and I think that's something that would, this sort of mutually assured destruction-esque reasoning of the film. You have the Kurt Russell character, McReady, holding a bomb and being like, this will explode unless you do what I want us to do, has this sort of peculiar resonance with nuclear warfare. You know, the whole logic of nuclear deterrence was if we have the best nukes, people won't attack us because they'll know we'll nuke them. And similarly, on a much smaller scale, McReady is holding that up as a way of getting people to do what he wants. Because if they don't, he can just destroy everything. The thing was also made during the Cold War, tail end of the Cold War, but it's still Cold War, which is... The Cold War enters under Reagan in the United States in particular. There's a return of kind of 60s era saber rattling and fear and very direct fear in America and across the world that there could actually be a nuclear conflict, which really was less of a thing in like the 70s. Still resonant, obviously. But yeah, like we should probably cycle back and explain the film to the couple of our listeners who probably haven't heard of it somehow. All five people who haven't heard of the thing. (laughs) Who haven't seen the thing don't really know much about the thing. It's from the early 80s. It takes place on a research center in Antarctica. And the film has this really, really interesting opening bit with the helicopter coming at them with the sniper and the dog. Oh, I love the dog. You should always be immediately terrified when like a dog shows up in a horror movie because you do know what is going to happen to them. But he's a lovely dog in the film. And you get this very disquieting opening sequence. And I think what's really good about it is that a lot of horror movies in the opening sequence where you want like a hook to like get people watching the film, obviously, but they oftentimes give away way too much. Whereas this, it's not really clear what's going on. It could, you could easily write it off in the opening scene as just a case of madness that this one Norwegian guy went insane, drove out and tried to just kill all these Americans. You aren't really given any indication that there's possession at work in the film. And I think that's one reason that makes it a very disquieting scene. And I think across all these films, John Carpenter is really great at these disquieting, difficult to shake images. The stuff in Prince of Darkness that comes to mind also is like the way the ants are just in the backdrop of so much. You just get so many of these shots that reveal that there's these ants that are sort of working in the distance. Even in like a non-horror context, I will see ants and be terrified. Are you terrified of Woody Allen film Ants? Well, it's not really a Woody Allen film, but a film Woody Allen is in and did (laughs) writing work on, as a matter of fact, Ants. Isn't Ants like a remake of Seven Samurai, or am I thinking of another bug movie? So much of American genre cinema is just remakes of Seven Samurai. So that's true. To get back to the thing, the reason it really works, and it's easy to compare with something like Alien. In Alien, nothing really happens in the beginning. It's very like a slow boil, and it's all about atmosphere. Whereas the thing hits you very early with the violence. It's very out of left field violence. To compare it with Alien again, Alien is this very 2001 esque film with these very like precise atmospheric touches to it versus the thing is almost documentary-esque in its style. Carpenter is not crafting this like expressionist mise-en-scene. He's doing something that feels a lot more raw than that. So you get this opening scene that does feel sort of realistic. What I really love about the thing is how lonely it is. 
Yeah. In typical Carpenter fashion, it does have an ensemble cast, but they just feel so cut off from each other that you kind of forget it's like a group of people who supposedly like are working together and know each other because they all feel so distant. That was a point of complaint for the film, was that none of the characters felt very distinct. That was one of the many critical reactions to the film when it came out. I wouldn't say they're indistinct. It's more they're all cut off from each other. Yeah. The original The Thing from Another Earth has these long introductory scenes to a lot of the characters, which Carpenter cuts out. Some people would regard that as a poor choice that it robs the characters of their specific grounding traits. You don't really see them working together ever in the Carpenter film, but I think that's part of what makes the film interesting. You do see them arguing. Yeah. Basically, the only interaction any of them have is arguing with each other or yelling at each other in some capacity. Even before we get into, like, the actual paranoia, we get the scene where the guy's yelling at the cook, and he's saying, like, turn that music down, and he proceeds to not turn it down. Where you see a lot of stuff of just people watching, like, VHS tapes of Let's Make a Deal, which I think is a funny touch. I like Kurt Russell just playing, like, computer chess. I think another thing across all these films is that Carpenter is very funny. He's very funny. He's got, like, a wicked sense of humor, but also a good sense of scary. He doesn't make horror comedies, because that feels like such an obnoxious genre to me. Horror comedy is really hard to do well, but I think the comedy in Carpenter's films is always more disquieting. It doesn't resolve tension. Bad horror comedy, the comedy feels sort of separate. Whereas with this, it feels like a very organic part of the world. In the thing, like, he destroys the computer chess thing after he keeps losing to it. I would do that too if that was me. Yeah, he just has this real, like, whoops reaction. That's very humanizing. Mm, yeah. And it doesn't detract from how scary the film is. And the film is very scary. As the film progresses and you get into the specific more violent encounters with the thing and you like see it take these forms and new shapes, it's a legitimately horrific creature because it can take the shape of everything. And what gives it a sort of uncanny quality is it sort of does look like a person or a dog or whatever, but it's not quite there. Like the bit when they go to the Norwegian station thing and they see the two heads like melded together, both screaming, is such a wonderfully disquieting image. There is no sensible explanation for why those got there. That's another thing I like about The Thing is that there's not any real backstory for The Thing aside from basically how it works. They explain that, but they don't really explain how it came to be, which I think makes it more terrifying. Yeah, the whole film is really grounded in this real sense that you know everything just that the characters do. There is no, like, intense backstory scene where you see, like, why the thing is doing what it's doing. Or It's totally just a mystery. It's basically like, there's this creature, it can imitate other life forms, it's in the Arctic, you guys fuck around and find out. There's no real backstory for it, which, if there was a backstory, I feel like it would sort of lessen the impact. It's kind of up to the audience to come up with an explanation for it. And you sort of have to watch them try to figure out how you should fight it. It's not really clear what you're supposed to do or how you're supposed to deal with it as they sort of slowly learn how it works. 
And that leads to, in my mind, my favorite scene in the film, which is the scene with the blood testing, which is such a wonderfully tense scene, even before the special effects. And the special effects are great, don't get me wrong, but before the special effects come out, you just have this lingering sense of, A, does this testing thing even work at first? And B, what would it show who's lying, who's telling the truth, as all these people are sort of tied up as McReady is pointing at them. That, to me, pointing a flamethrower, like, basically ready to incinerate them at a moment's notice, that's just so wonderfully tense. It's a brilliant little bit of horror filming. I would say that across all three of these films, there's the sort of just showing the audience a phenomenon, and they know exactly as much about the phenomenon as the characters, and no more. Like, it happens in Prince of Darkness, it happens in In the Mouth of madness there's no real grand explanation yeah you're kind of left with figuring it out on your own the films never really resolve in any kind of convenient way for the audience i love the ending of in the mouth of madness this is jumping forward like two movies in 12 years yeah 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 the ending is great it's an ending but it's not like a coherent conclusion and it doesn't really answer anything you're set up to have an answer and then you just don't and i think that's great you're literally sam neil sitting in the theater eating his popcorn and laughing like a maniac at the end of the movie i should say the first time i saw the thing was at the beginning of the pandemic i watched it me too. I watched it with my dad. I forget where I got the DVD for it. It was a like a Sunrise Records, which is like a Canadian like music and DVD chain. Yeah, there's a bunch in malls and stuff. Yeah, I was at one and there was one of those like three for $15 DVD things. I always go for those because even if I don't watch the things for a while. I think for that I got, I think it was like two for 20 and I got Raging Bull and The Thing on DVD, if I remember correctly, for 20 bucks. When HMV used to be a thing, I remember very fondly buying three DVDs for $15, and those DVDs were Jaws, The Dark Knight, and Prometheus. Classic movies. I was 14 when I did this. That's very 14-year-old Googling movies and just watching whatever comes up. I have very mixed feelings on all of those films now, except for Jaws, which I think is a brilliant film. I was going to say, Jaws is great. Yeah, Jaws is a wonderful film. I will not hear Jaws slander. Watching this thing originally, I wasn't particularly taken by it, I should say, the first time I watched it. I felt like a critic in 1982 watching it, and I was very much like, I don't see what's special about this film. It's special because there's no women. Especially for, like, a horror film that's rather rare. But I didn't really grasp what was... On the first viewing, I thought the special effects were interesting. But I didn't particularly... I thought there was a lot of dead air in the film. I still think there is some dead air in the film, re-watching it. But I have a much greater appreciation for what it was trying to do on the rewatch than I think I originally gave it. Because there's a lot in the film that I think is very smart filmmaking full of these very good ideas and it's all very well executed it's a very perfect blockbuster film in that regard it really uses every penny of its special effects budget so well you get these like horrific i can only compare them to like francis bacon paintings you get these just prolonged images of these undescribable entities that sort of look human that are also part dog screaming with just blood and guts and you get a 
that sequence where they use the defibrillator on one of the guys and the stomach just opens up and just bites in on them. Oh god. I mean, I can see how an audience a couple of years out from Alien would watch that and be like, okay. This is the chestbuster sequence. But it's also very different from the chestbuster bit in Alien. And I also think Carpenter is a very specific user of body horror. If we compare him to someone like Cronenberg for a second, Carpenter's body horror is never nearly as sexual as it is in the Cronenberg films. If you watch like The Brood or Videodrome, all of the, the body horror is always very, to use a big term, it's either yonic or phallic. It's always evocative of vaginas and penises and... Carpenter doesn't think about sex. He thinks about computers and Sonic the Hedgehog. And just groups of manly men hanging out together. I think that picks up an unintentional homoerotic connotation in a lot of his films, but it's not like the Cronenberg version. The Cronenberg films, like, people develop extra vaginas. Like, the VHS cassette stuff in Videodrome becomes this sort of vaginal imagery that, like, the monster in The Brood is, like, basically a giant penis attached to a woman. Literally that Joe Budden tweet that's like, I'm so horny, I could create a whole new hole. <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. That's how David Cronenberg makes movies. I think John Carpenter, it would be easy to read his horror, like, something like the medical bit with the stomach as acquiring this sort of sexual quality to it. But it doesn't have the same, like, explicit resonance that I think something like The Brood's use. By resonance, I don't mean it's bad, I mean it's less, like, easily... It's not sexual. Yeah, it's not as explainable exclusively through sexual terms. His body horror is a lot more, I don't want to say philosophical, because his films are oftentimes very unpretentious. His body horror is a lot more rooted in, like, just asking. It would be fucked up if this would happen. Yeah, rooted in destabilizing our particular notion of what a person is and going, how do you know what is really going on in the world? That's why he's a very good cosmic horror filmmaker. Whereas the Cronenberg films are often, who he's often compared to, are teeming with sort of sexual anxiety. I'm sorry I'm just comparing him to Cronenberg, but this is the main reference point. CanCon, we have to. Also, it's like 80s body horror guys who are kind of jumped in the same category, but I think they both approach filmmaking very differently. Yeah, I don't see that many similarities between Cronenberg and Carpenter. Other than they're both special effects-driven horror filmmakers who had their heydays in the 80s. They're both special effects-driven horror filmmaking. They were both around during the 80s. They're generally regarded as being less pretentious than certain other like beloved directors of the time there's a lot of overlap in the fan base just because horror fans like horror the films themselves i can see a comparison on like the cultural space they occupy they definitely occupy a similar cultural space but they're very different in terms of how they operate and their ideology, or at least as it comes across in their films. The Cronenberg films have this very distinctive paranoia about sexuality that I don't think is a thing in the Carpenter-verse. Sexuality, in particularly the films we watched, is never really the core anxiety of the Carpenter films. There is something to be said about in The Thing, how there's like a group of entirely men, and it's set in the 80s 
80s and they're like checking each other's blood there is like an aids crisis reading that could be made of it first of all sort of prefigures aids or at least public awareness but you could definitely do that reading but it's a reading that's sort of on the level of subtext whereas all the cronenberg films are very unsubtly about sex i don't get the sense that carpenter really intended that but I think it's an interesting reading. It's an interesting reading. It, it would be a great essay that I definitely would read, but I wouldn't ascribe it to Carpenter. I think you could make a really good point about the sort of homosociality, to use the big academic terms. That's the word I was going to say about like gay stuff in The Thing, because on the one hand, there's not a lot of explicit sexuality in The Thing. But on the other hand, it's like there's this group of men and they're stuck alone together and they're all like really, really lonely and they seemingly live in a world where women don't exist. The closest thing to an acknowledgement of women in the film is that they have posters with topless women on them that you sort of see in the background of some shots. Like that's You could show someone who hasn't learned what a woman is the thing and they wouldn't get any new information. And who knows, maybe the thing is just women. <laughs> According to Wikipedia, the only female presence in the film is the voice of the computer, which was John Carpenter's then-wife, Adrienne Barbeau. Oh, I forgot. Yeah. I immediately reached for, you can see in the background of shots, topless women. And that's a very, like, classically homosocial gathering, particularly in cinema, whether it's films that take place in military context or prison context. I was going to say it's very, like, militaristic. Not the film itself so much but like the context in which the men are all together and i mean there is a certain militaristic context to it there is a sort of nationalism to the film that i don't think the film is affirming but i think it's nonetheless a present quality in the film that makes it interesting a lot like shin megami tensei strange journey the cast is kind of internationally comprised and another interesting quality in the thing obviously is it feels sort of tangential but there's a little bit to be said about the way race works in the film i think yeah. Even just the bit with the turn down the music. The music is like Stevie Wonder, and it's a the black cook is being told to turn down his supposedly crap music. And like, imagine saying that about Stevie Wonder that he's crap. I will say, like, two days after I watched the thing for the podcast, I was making breakfast. You know, they were doing a thing on CBC where they were talking about how it's the anniversary of the Stevie Wonder album, where that song came from. And I was in the kitchen and they start playing that song. And I'm like, okay, this is fucked up. <laughs> I don't feel nearly qualified enough to, like, think about what, like, a reading of the thing in the context of race would do. I think it's a quality at least worth flagging. Um. Yeah, the fact that the cast is like, other than the lack of women, it's pretty diverse. Yeah, like there's... There's all sorts of guys. You see them all doing the different things. You can see in the background, they have like a Galaga machine. And you know, if I was like stranded in the Arctic, that'd be a good usage of your time. One of those like Galaga. I would get really good at computer chess. No, I, I would probably still be really bad at it. I'm not particularly good at chess. The Arctic Research Center is a kind of man cave, for lack of a better term, in the film. And we haven't really even talked about the filmmaking in the thing. And it's often because Carpenter feels like such an invisible presence, which isn't a bad thing, I should say. He's very unpretentious in his filmmaking and is thinking about all the filmmakers we've covered. He's easily the least pretentious. 
I think he's the most realist of the filmmakers we've covered, which is hilarious to say, I know. Carpenter is not an expressionist. I see what you're getting at. He's not as artistically high-minded as the likes of Fassbinder or Godard or Norman Mailer. I think his films, when they work, work because they have a real sense of in the here and now. They have a deep sense of realism to them, which is what separates him from a lot of other horror filmmakers. His direction reminds me a lot of someone like George Romero, in that sense. Yeah, and in the thing, there is all these sort of touches of cultural touchstones that the audience in the early 80s would recognize. Like, there's the VHS tapes of those shows, there's those very 80s computers that my dad would brag about having when he was my age. There's this very, like, stylistically in the way he shoots the thing in particular. I think Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness are much more stylized films. Both of those movies make a lot of usage of, like, wide angles. I mean, there's some really cool shots in the thing. Like, I mean, obviously there's, like, the creature, which we all know and love at this point. But I'm more thinking about, like, that scene in the kitchen where he's playing Stevie Wonder and you see just the dog. That's, like... I said that was a beautiful dog, and it is, but that's also, like, really disquieting and, like, subtly... Well, no, it's not subtle, but it is terrifying. Carpenter's takes in the film, he has a lot of takes that are not particularly long by any stretch of the imagination, but they are very grounded takes. They're longer than a normal... the way editing is normally done on a film. <laughs> As the camera just moves through spaces... You get a sense of this very lived-in world. You're sort of moving through these, like, sweeping dollies and handheld shots in the film that I do think really contribute to it feeling like an actual place where people live. I think The Thing and Prince of Darkness have a lot in common, both in that sense and also in sort of the presence of computers in the films. In the Mouth of Madness doesn't have as much of a computer presence, but... Prince of Darkness definitely does. And oh my god, that shot where the student is typing and it just says, I live, I live, I live, I live. Th that's like awesome. There's a lot of cool stuff in Prince of Darkness. Hot take. So should we segue into Prince of Darkness, I guess? Do we? Oh, I have one more thing to say about the thing. The score is very good. The score is very good. Just one thing I want to say about the Razzies in the early 80s is they were almost universally wrong. Uh, I'm looking on the Wikipedia. Other infamous Razzie mistakes of the early 1980s include The Shining, Shelley Duvall, Worst Actor, which I'm pretty sure they like issued a straight-up apology to her, or just to society in general for saying that it's a bad performance, because it's a great performance. All the Worst Picture nominees are particularly funny, because I think there's like three or four of them that are, like, basically good movies. I mean, how good were movies in the early 80s if The Thing is one of the worst movies? I'm looking at the first Golden Raspberry Award list on Wikipedia. It does give worst actor to Neil Diamond in the baffling 1980 remake of The Jazz Singer. There is no blackface in this one. I just want to point that out. Like, this isn't, like, sort of a 80s-ification and also worst supporting actor... 
was uh, Laurence Olivier in The Jazz Singer. That's more defensible. Those are just like the meme movies of the time, though. Okay, I was looking at a bunch of these. Like, the 1981 thing. You have, like, Mommy Dearest as Worst Picture. Nope. Heaven's Gate. Nope. A lot of these movies are just good. It's funny, they did go a Worst Career Achievement Award to Ronald Reagan in 1981. That's, that's, that's kind of funny. That's reasonable. That's the most defensible thing they've ever done. Going through this, it's like, yeah, there are some bad movies on this list, but... I'm just kind of ticked off about them giving a bunch of noms to Coral. It does reveal the venture of bad movies as a... So many of these awards are just about kicking what's already down. I'll say there's two types of people in the world. People who understand the movie Coral and Artless Losers. So many of the awards they give out are just movies that you can tell nobody watched. There's a whole category that they had that was like, in 2021, that was like, worst performance in a Bruce Willis movie. And it's just a bunch of movies that Bruce Willis was in. Which... You know, the man had, like, dementia as he was making that and was being dragged around by shady producers. Like, that feels like kicking someone who's already down. There's a certain cruelty in how often the worst performance is just a child actor. It's like, I'm sorry that this nine-year-old isn't as good as Meryl Streep. I don't really need anyone to tell me that Rambo Last Bud is a bad movie. I think what's on screen made that readily apparent. To sort of segue into Prince of Darkness, a film that I don't think works nearly as well as The Thing. I like Prince of Darkness. This is going to be like Siskel and Ebert-esque disagreement. I think that I... (sighs) Calling it the weakest feels mean because it's not like it's the worst. It's a really good movie. They're all really good movies. I really like John Carpenter. But I do think that the Apocalypse trilogy... Let me put a positive spin on what I'm going to say. It gets progressively better with each film. I would say I think The Thing is better than Prince of Darkness, though. I would dispute that. But I think Prince of Darkness is a movie that feels like it has a lot of moving parts and a lot of ideas. I mean, I just kind of am a sucker for any sort of religious imagery. Even if it's just, like, in the background. I am, too. There's this sort of setup conflict of the film between, like, the physics people and religion, and it never really goes anywhere. That's interesting. I just like the setup of Prince of Darkness. Put a bunch of grad students in a church and see what happens. I don't want to, like, be a nitpicker, but I am very annoyed at the fact that the film has a scene where a grad student needs the concept of Schrodinger's cat needs to be explained to a grad student. I don't want to be a nitpicker. I don't want to do like CinemaSins shit. It feels mean. I don't need the film to have an accurate explanation of quantum physics in the beginning of the film. But it feels really hokey when you have the people being confused that like concepts that I know for a fact are taught at undergrad level physics classes. Like there's something kind of silly about that. I don't want to be petty. That doesn't mean the movie's bad. It just annoyed me. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Prince of Darkness has a lot of stuff in it. Yeah, it's dense. It's throwing a lot of ideas at the wall. It's sort of hinting at a sort of Gnosticism, thematically, of God is real, but he's evil. I think that's an interesting thing to hint at, but I don't think the film does much with it. And I could compare it with a film that I think is a better kind of religious horror movie. And that, of course, is The Exorcist. I knew you were going to say that. The Exorcist is grounded in a very human spiritual crisis on the part of the main priest. Why am I forgetting his name? The hot one or the old one? Oh, it's uh, Damien. The hot one? Yeah, the hot one. Yeah, the hot boxer one. 
is grounded in this very real sort of spiritual crisis that the exorcism often becomes a sort of backdrop of this Bergman-esque religious drama. Well, it does have Max von Sydow in it. Whereas I don't think there's a character in Prince of Darkness who has that sort of vibe. There's no sexy priest in Prince of Darkness. Priest character Donald Pleasance, he's just kind of rolling with the punches in a way that Damien doesn't in The Exorcist. Where Damien is like... Oh, I don't know if God is real. Da, 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 da. As he's having all these like spiritual crises, thinking about the death of his mom. I don't think there's an equivalent thing in the Donald Pleasance role in this film. He's just kind of there. It's yeah. Like, you you got to have a priest. And there doesn't even feel like there's like a philosophical kind of religion versus science conflict in the film, which is kind of hinting at. But I mean, it just reaches this. Yeah, religion and science are sort of both right. In this very, like, unsatisfying way where it's like, also the Catholic Church has been lying for 2,000 years, having this secret fucking demon thing, which is kind of silly. No shit the Catholic Church is lying. The Donald Pleasance character doesn't really, like, that's like one scene in the film, and I feel like that is a much more interesting concept than the film lets on. Also, there is this sort of undercurrent of homosexuality again in the film. There's a lot of gay jokes in the movie. I like the part where the student says, I had a pimple and my doctor said it meant I'm gay. That's not exactly how the conversation goes. There's a reference to his face breaking out and some sort of repressed homosexuality. And like, that's just kind of a one-off bit, but I still think it's very interesting. The whole film has this sort of allegorical significance of disease outbreak and AIDS yet again. This time there's women, though. Yeah, there are women, but there is like a strict, almost like gender segregation in who is allowed to birth the devil in the film. Like, all of the men get killed, whereas the two women and the third one become like this ceremonial Shakespearean three sisters. That's a pretentious math reference, but whatever. I'm correct. Who get to like birth the new... There's a strict sort of gender line in that, which I think is interesting. Like, the sequence where you have Kelly, the one who's giving birth to the thing, like, not the thing. Um, the Prince of Darkness. The titular Prince of Darkness. That sort of birth imagery has this real gender dynamic to it. All of the men become, like, zombies. It's like an asexual version of the brood. Yeah, it is a lot like the brood in that sense. But less explicitly it's not divorce core which is another important distinction yeah wasn't john carpenter like a major wife guy i wouldn't be shocked by that i mean the only female presence in the film the thing is just the voice of his wife you watch the brood and you kind of be like david do you have a problem with women like in general no he just has a problem with his bitch ex-wife you watch that film and you're like i don't know if i like this this feels so mean <laughs> At least that's my reaction to it. I'm like, The Brood is an exceptionally mean-spirited film. I'm a child of divorce, so I get it. In Prince of Darkness, you get a lot more capital C cinematography in the film. Oh yeah, there's a lot of gorgeous shots. That and the special effects are the two things that I think are really good in the film. I just really think the computer stuff in Prince of Darkness is so cool. That's like the main draw of the film for me, which is super duper shallow, but I'm really easy to impress. 
when it comes to that sort of stuff. I am a fan of the, like, cheesy 80s movie computer stuff, where it's just like, the equations are out of control. Like, that's always fun. It really is true that there's nothing scarier than just, like, a black screen spitting out ominous tacks. I do like the detail that the computer is doing differential equations, even though it's a document that's before the invention of modern calculus. That's sort of cosmic horror in a sort of Lovecraft way, again, where it's like, there are these alien entities that have these sort of concepts that are unknowable to us, or these things that we think we invented that are actually secretly... They're supernatural presences... All of the science in the film does turn very supernaturally, which is sort of interesting. I don't know how to feel about the homeless people in the film. I think it's a wonderfully disquieting image, though, to see just this crowd of people all outside the building, seemingly brainless, very zombie-ish again. I mean, grad students looking down on homeless people, that's not exactly a foreign concept, so... The way the one guy dies where the bugs take him over is such a great special effect. Probably my favorite bit in the film. Groups of bugs are really scary to me. Maggots, ants, ugh, icky. That's where the film gets me, and I think... The difference is, when I talked about The Thing, I was like, before the special effects come out, there's this brilliant bit of tension with the blood testing, whereas with this, I'm more like, look, the special effects are cool. And I think that's why I don't think it's as good as The Thing. I like the rapport between the grad students. It's endearing in the sort of way that Carpenter handles group dynamic. In that sense, it feels a lot more, not human than The Thing, but like, there's a lot more sort of human interaction all the characters in the thing feel like people, but they don't interact like people, if that makes sense. None of the characters in the thing like each other. The characters in the thing are like roommates who never speak to each other. So basically, my entire college experience. Yeah. Whereas this, it feels like there's a sort of rapport across the characters. I think this is the one where I think the comedy for me is not as strong as it is in the other films either. The dripped-out Asian grad student, one of the most prescient parts of the film, if you ask me. Um, I like the part where he's like, I always loved being dominated by women. I think that's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is immature, and it does get kind of hokey at points, but I do think there is something to be said for why it would resonate. Like, I think the film never is, like, bad. If you were a grad student in that situation, you would behave in a cringy way, too. That is true. Like, you do get a real sense of immaturity in these characters, because they're not really allowed to ever exist as fully functional adult members of society, because they all get killed before they leave grad school. If the film were better, I think it would spend more time on the kind of romance of the film. Because that's where the ending goes. And I think the ending is very well executed. It doesn't have the same resonance as, say, the death of Damien in The Exorcist, because it doesn't feel like we've been following it nearly as much. And none of them are as hot. Yeah, yeah, none of them are as hot. You get the scene where Catherine, I think, is the, the one who dies. Yeah, at the end, where she, like, throws herself into hell. And that, I think, is very powerful. And then you get uh, Brian. Actually, I'll say Jameson Parker is very hot in the film. At the end, like, Reese shirtless. 
There's a vibe. He's no Damien from The Exorcist. I don't know how to describe this, but it looks like his, like, nipples are, like, going inside in the film. I don't know if I'm, like, just delusional, but that's what I was thinking about. But the ending where he's dreaming about her and he sees the transmission again, I think that's powerful. The depiction of hell in the film is interesting. The ending doesn't feel... It feels like it needed a better film to be structured around. That might be... I'd put up. I can definitely see why people would like the film. I go on like Letterboxd and I see a lot of people comparing it to like a giallo. Maybe I am too focused on like plot narrative because I do think. When someone asks me what's Prince of Darkness about, I'm like, oh, it's got cool vibes and cool computer shit. That being said, despite me being a shallow airhead, I'm not much of a giallo fan, to be honest. I mean, I like some of the Argentos, but I'm not like. You wouldn't catch me spending, like, $20 to go to a screening of, like, the murder of the lady with fingers or whatever. I like some of the giallos. It's not really a genre that I've ever considered myself to be, like, an aficionado for. And I don't really know why. I love Italian cinema. I love a lot of the films of that period in Italy. I find myself at this point in my life more interested in like in terms of genre films the crime films that were coming out around the same time or even just like the spaghetti westerns i just love gay men in italy making movies or gay adjacent men as is the case with bertolucci Jason, man. I think part of the reason that I, I think I'm sort of resentful about Giallo's can be like, uh, but there's all the stuff that I think is cool that people don't talk about as much. But a lot of the Argento movies are good. There are some good films in that genre. I think Prince of Darkness, to like it more than I do, you need to kind of throw expectations of well-devised scripts out of the door. <laughs> you gotta be a dumb airhead who only half understands what's going on at any point, like, ever. The other thing about the film that feels sort of hinted at that I don't think is ever fully explored is the horror of quantum physics. The horror of our reality not making common sense. There's the introductory speech in the film where he talks about how time doesn't move in an arrow. And that feels really interesting, and I think that's a quality that the film doesn't explore. The film never really plays with time, and I would contrast that with In the Mouth of Madness, which I think is a film that lives up to its... In the Mouth of Madness, now there's a movie, that's... That's a brilliant 95 minutes or whatever. There is not a boring moment in The Mouth of Madness, it is... I would say easily, of the three films... And of all the other films Carpenter's directed, In the Mouth of Madness is almost certainly my favorite. I love a good Sam Neill performance. It's grounded in a good performance. The script is beautifully nutty. The direction is full of these gothic, wide angles of insane asylums. and. I love the theme to it. Yeah, the theme song is great. It's a film that, like, weirdly enough, feels very grounded. I think in part because of the Sam Neill performance. Compared to the uber-smart grad students of Prince of Darkness or the military-esque research guys of Thing, Sam Neill's kind of like just a regular person. He has a normal person job. He's very good at his normal person job, as we see in the intro scene in the film that I quite like, where he's like busting the gun. He's a Michael Mann protagonist. Yeah, a little bit. As he's like busting this guy for doing insurance fraud, I think that's a very good scene in the film. Because it establishes him as this, much like a Lovecraft protagonist, he's this very rational person 
who is drawn into this irrational world he can't understand or process. Yeah, he's very much like a normal guy in a strange world. Even as all the nutty things are going on around him, he's like, no, we need to make sense of this using common sense. These are all paid actors. They're trying to pull a fast one on the insurance company. And then he increasingly realizes that that can't be the case. That, like, this is way beyond insurance. One of my favorite little bits of that is what he dreams on the bus about Sutter Kane. And Kane says that, like, you know my favorite color is blue. Snaps, wakes up, everything is blue. <laughs> it's just like... I know. Aw, oh, that's so good. I just love Sam Neill. He's such a great actor. He is perfect in this film. We should probably explain the film a little bit, but it's basically about Sam Neill, who is an insurance investigator, who's hired to do this case where he has to figure out where this mysterious horror author disappeared. Basically like a Stephen King type figure. As the film says, Kane outsells them all. He sells more than Stephen King. I love it when a movie like has a character who's really an expy of a real person, and then they just name drop that real person. Yeah, that's always very funny. It's very like Law and Order SVU. He's also sort of Lovecrafty Kane as a figure. A lot of the books he writes have these titles that are references to Lovecraft novels or short stories. So basically, he's sent on this journey to figure out where this strange reclusive horror writer went to as the world around him seems to be slowly going insane. As all the people who are reading his novel are losing touch with reality and mysteriously killing people. It's about the book that makes you lose your mind, basically. What if the Necronomicon from Lovecraft was, like, available for purchase for $5.99? What if you could walk into chapters, get a book, read it, and then start killing people? The film is very much about the interplay of fiction and reality. You have all the quotes in the film that are like, reality is what people tell each other it is. Very my shallow understanding of Schopenhauer, that bit. It's very postmodern in a way that I think works. It's definitely on the Wikipedia list of postmodern films. There's no way it's not. It's very spiritually an experimental film at its core, which is why I think it's an interesting film, is that it sets up a sort of narrative level, and then you realize that the narrative is in of itself constructed, the characters realize the narrative is constructed, and they attempt to do things that deviate from the narrative, but nothing actually works, because they are just children of the god of Sutter Kane, and then that drives them mad. It's sort of at the confluence of like a sort of pull Lovecraft story, but also a sort of like experimental novel. Yeah, it's much more experimental than the other two films. That's not saying much when I think about the other two films, but it kind of, it's almost an evolution of the previous two films in the sense that in the previous two films, there's at least a semblance of reality in like the setup of the films, while in this basically like very quickly you realize there's no way to know what is and isn't real. That could be a very dumb reading of it, though. I think, like, one of the best quotes in the film is when the Sam Neill character says that, like, any species can smell its own extinction. The two other films are sort of apocalyptic. This one is just, like, philosophically apocalyptic. It's a movie for people who think they're smart. Is that a negative review of... <laughs> no, no. I love it. It's, like, my favorite in the trilogy because... I mean, I just really like Sam Neill. Sam Neill is great. But yeah, the whole film, it very much prefigures the sort of Thomas Ligotti-y kind of apocalyptic horror fiction writing. 
Ligoti might have actually been writing at this point. The very, like, conspiracy against the human race type writing of do people even deserve to exist? I should say Ligoti is very explicitly inspired by Schopenhauer, amongst other things. Okay, so I'm not totally talking out of my ass. I miss Ligoti. Okay, Ligoti started writing in, like, the 80s, so there's a cross-section there. Sutter Kane reminds me a lot of Ligoti in the sense that they both have this very, like, fundamentally pessimistic view of humanity. Stephen King novels are not about how people are evil and don't deserve to exist and will be overrun by these weird, monstrous, human hybrid things. Stephen King has a slightly more optimistic view of human nature than that. Whereas these films feel very like, people do not deserve to exist, and people will not exist, they will be overrun by madness and be morphed into beings beyond recollection of humanity. Mankind itself will only be a, a bedtime story in the future. That's a great bit of dialogue, by the way. I think that's why the film works so well. Even though the special effects are nowhere near as on point as the other films, it doesn't have the in-depthness of the thing special effects. Well, there's no creature. Well, there is a creature, it's just very brief. The creature is the concept of plot if that makes any sense like okay let me put it in the thing you have a thing that can take on the form of anything any living thing so you don't know who to trust but like you can trust the world around you as long as it's not people you could go see a chair and like know that it's a chair well you don't even have the luxury of that and in the mouth of madness because like the chair could be a hallucination because you read a book about chairs and it made you go crazy. The whole film is about destroying your- I think it succeeds where Prince of Darkness fails, because it's a film about your common sense ability to understand reality being totally destroyed. And then the ending, all you can do is laugh. I love the ending of In the Mouth of Madness. It's one of my favorite movie endings ever. I love that he gets freed from the asylum as he's sort of walking around this dilapidated world and he's the only person in the movie theater and he could still get his popcorn yeah he watches this film of himself and if you look really closely the poster that you see outside for in the mouth of madness as he walks in says directed by john carpenter yeah it's very this is you like it's almost a reflection of the audience but it's unlike a lot of movies that hold up a mirror to the audience it's not spiteful in any way it's more just yeah this is you watching this movie confused have a nice day the whole film ends on this genuine sense of the like apocalyptic and not just in the world is going to end in this real like the world sort of deserves to end kind of way. It's very Shin Megami Tensei chaos root. The whole film is just grounded in the idea that humanity has overrun its course. And that's terrifying. And it's terrifying because it doesn't really provide a resolution. It never goes, actually, here's why this is wrong. Nobody can ever really respond to Kane saying that the world is irredeemably bad, basically, and that these eldritch horrors are going to come back from sort of prehistory because we will believe in them again. Oh my god, like, that's so uniquely unsettling in a way that most horror films aren't. It doesn't 
beyond, you know, the sort of they'll believe in these things, it doesn't give any real specific reason to why humanity deserves to die. It's just kind of operating on the assumption that, like, you, the viewer, knows how evil human beings are and how they just inherently deserve to die. Like, it's very much the thing not giving a backstory for the thing in that sense. It's but, like, the thing is just nihilism as a concept. Yeah, the whole film is really interested in nihilism. In a way that most horror films aren't, in a way that most films, particularly genre films, aren't. And I think that's why it particularly deserves to be reclaimed. I think it's slowly built up more and more of a fan base over the years. It deserves a much greater critical revival, because it feels so ahead of its time. There are so many movies like this now. There are a lot of books or horror writers who are... Elevated horror. It's way more elevated than any sort of elevated horror film. The whole film is this wonderfully uncanny journey through, like, do people deserve to exist? And what does it even mean to be a person? These very basic questions that most films will sort of just take for granted, you know, like, I know what a person is sort of vaguely. I know what a person is, and I know that human beings don't deserve to die. And this film is disquieting because it goes, why do you think that? What source? <laughs> sources and Sutter Kane is very my sources that I made it the fuck up but he's like my source but there's no alternative argument presented so it's not like you can say that's wrong dude yeah because he's controlling reality and because he's writing these novels that are so popular and they're so infested into the collective unconscious or whatever of the civilization he lives in it becomes true it's about how marvel movies are like the modern mythology <laughs> we've made fun of that twice in a row and i want to point out another carryover from last episode what song plays in the asylum? I was gonna say, and also, it's a nice little John Carpenter, there's our fucking link. There's something very funny about that, that there's a joke about the Carpenters in this film. A joke about the Carpenters in a John Carpenter film. Oh no, not the Carpenters. You know another Carpenter whose initials were JC? <laughs> there's your god allegory in the mouth of madness it's so wonderfully shot all of the montages in the film that are like people reading the book that are just these flashes of reoccurring images like axes coming down if there's one shot in the film i can single out as my favorite little moment in the film it's where he literally tears the page open that's just a beautiful glistening image i love the usage of christian iconography in the film i love just the mosaic shots of jesus and angels in between people bleeding i think it's a brilliantly edited film more than anything and also all these like wide angle shots these very off-kilter wide-angle shots of the church. The movie is just loaded with these images that are so outside of the norm for horror films. And I think it's a film that does justice to the religious iconography. Or just like, as we talked about earlier, the bit with the color blue. I like that it's meta, but not pretentiously so. Another filmmaker could have made a movie like In the Mouth of Madness, and it would have been like horribly pretentious. Can you fucking imagine if Charlie Kaufman made In the Mouth of Madness? That would probably be the most insufferable 
insufferable movie of all time. We're like Ari Aster. I don't even want to acknowledge that. Carpenter is so down to earth in how he makes films. In any normal movie, I would like make fun of it. If someone said like, madness is just what people agree it is. Like if people said that, I'd be like, okay, this is like, you took a philosophy class and you're very proud of yourself type writing but in this it feels so breathtakingly sincere it's cute watching john carpenter try to be deep because he's not doing it in any sort of like hacky way like this is a genuine expression this is his very sort of youthful i guess way of expressing these very real ideas and concepts what if you ask a four-year-old to explain schopenhauer's will that's the vibe i feel like one thing that the film has going for it is this very youthful energy it feels like this could have been someone's first film oh i mean a lot of carpenter does sort of have the feel of like student film sounds dismissive of a passion project of someone who's not quite sure what they're doing even his films that I don't particularly like, I will be like, you can tell that he put so much into this. Which is funny, because you'll listen to an interview where he talks about, like, yeah, I don't give a shit, but I'm glad every time they remake Halloween, because I can buy Sonic. His films are also just so, like, open-minded. Even just the way he talks about watching his son play Sonic the Hedgehog and realizing that the music was really good. And that's what made him love video games. That's a way that very few people approach the world. Most people would be like, oh, my dumbass kid is playing video games. If only my parents reacted that way when I was into video games. I remember, I don't begrudge my parents for this, showing them, like, video games and them just being completely baffled. By anything that wasn't like Pac-Man was like something they didn't really understand why anyone. I remember trying to convince my dad to play the original Super Mario Brothers with me one time and him just like not understanding it <laughs> at all. Let alone if I showed him Sonic the Hedgehog. If I showed him the Sonic the Hedgehog game with a black knight. You know, that shit. I think that's what makes Carpenter such an interesting filmmaker is that so many of his movies are, like, radically open-minded. He's unpretentious. I mean, we've talked about, like, you know, a lot of art house directors on this show, but Carpenter is a very unpretentious director, and I feel like you could show basically anyone a Carpenter movie and they'd be like, all right, yeah, this is pretty neat. I couldn't just show my brother a Fassbender movie and be like, hey, Sam, check this out. He showed someone like an Antonioni or whatever. They'd be like, eh, I don't know about this. But Carpenter has this real streak of just, he just wants to scare people in, in these films. He just wants to make like cool movies. Yeah, he just wants to make things that are cool and interesting. And he's sort of followed his own muse to make these very unique and interesting horror films that give him a very distinctive voice. And I mean, another Another child of his filmmaking style is someone like Jordan Peele. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Jordan Peele has very explicitly said that he's very inspired by Carpenter. I'm not surprised by that. Even ignoring the influence Carpenter has on Peele, there's sort of a similar philosophy to art that they share, in which they're just trying to like do these concepts. That's the thing that I love about a lot of the Peele films. We Peele's movies are just about themes. He just has these ideas that he just needs to get out there. Us? 
does almost feel very spiritually similar to these movies in the total apocalyptic doom. Or like something like Nope. A lot of people complained about Nope. I don't know if you've seen Nope yet. I've seen Nope. Okay, good. People complained about like all the stuff with Gordy not adding to the plot point. And it sure, it doesn't add to the plot in the sort of mechanical level that it doesn't progress everything. But it just is about the themes and the ways the characters are feeling. And that's the stuff that I really like about Carpenter and the stuff that I really like about Jordan Peele is that these films are all, they're not just about from point A to point B screenwriting. They're about like mood and feeling and theme and people dealing with these sort of thematic issues that come up across these films. They also have very richly developed worlds, both Peel and Carpenter. And I think I would say the most obvious father of Carpenter is Howard Hawks. Yeah, I think Carpenter would acknowledge Hawks as a key inspiration for a lot of his stuff. Friend of the pod, Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks was also a very unpretentious filmmaker. Yeah, there's sort of like a lineage, the Hawks. Carpenter Peel. Hawks are like John Ford is another key. Because Hawks worked in the studio system, he got to work with a lot more genres. And I think that's one of the real shames about someone like Carpenter is I would love to watch what a John Carpenter directed musical would look like or a John Carpenter directed Western or but because there was no longer if you get your start in making horror films, you can't really do anything else. This is such a pretentious thing to say. But Escape from New York is kind of a postmodern Western. Escape from New York is also lovely. I think that might be one of my favorites of his, if not in the Mouth of Madness. Also, I do like Halloween quite a bit. Yeah. But Escape from New York is such a particularly great piece of filmmaking that just also is really good at just capturing a mood and feeling. I mean, I just really like Metal Gear Solid, so... I love Metal Gear Solid. Carpenter is good the same way that, like, a Silent Hill game is good, if that makes sense. I mean, like I said, he's sort of transcended the medium with his influence, which I think is part of why I would say he's unpretentious, because he's got, like, an appeal to gamers. If you're, like, a gamer, or if you have, like, a gamer shithead of a little brother, show them a John Carpenter movie, and they'll be like, oh, I get this whole cinema thing now. Oh, Snake Plus Gen. Carpenter has very video gamey sensibilities, but in a way that I think works. Like, there's a lot of films that I would call video gamey as kind of, like, an insult. It's because he was making films before being into video games became inherently insufferable. Versus so many fucking... Like, if anyone could make a good video game adaptation, it wouldn't be, like, Carpenter. If anyone could make, like, a Silent Hill movie that's good, it would be Carpenter. <laughs> Carpenter should be reclaimed for, like, In the Mouth of Madness. In the Mouth of Madness deserves to have its moment in history. I don't think it's slowly happening. More and more people are talking about In the Mouth of Madness. It's spreading. More and more people are getting Sutter Kane fever. It's spreading. And before you know it, we'll all be dead. It'll be great.